0: First Chronicles 29 in the Old Testament for today. And if you didn't bring a copy of the Bible, how about borrowing our copy? It's on the back of the seat in front of you, page 306, 306 in our copy of the Bible. First Chronicles 29 in your copy. I want to take a little survey. And this is kind of interactive church today, okay? That's what we're doing. Now, if I were to say the best president ever, who would you say? All right, well, maybe this is a bad idea. (laughs) I don't know, this is not a good idea. No, Abraham Lincoln. Yes, that's what we ought to say. Okay, the most famous, the most famous baseball player ever? Babe Ruth. Thank you. The best farmer's almanac writer ever? Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, how about the best nun ever? Mother Teresa. Sure. Okay, how about this one? The best football coach ever? Oh, no, I. Well... If you lived here in Washington, you'd probably be inclined to say Joe Gibbs. And I'm a Joe Gibbs fan, but I don't think this honor goes to Joe Gibbs. This honor goes... Excuse me. This honor goes to... Interactive Church is over. This honor goes to... This honor goes to Vince Lombardi, in my mind, who uh, has to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, coach ever. And, you know, I didn't really know much about Vince Lombardi's life until I read his biography entitled, When Pride Still Mattered. Vince Lombardi was born June eleventh, 1913, and he took over as head coach of the Green Bay Packers in 1959. The Green Bay Packers of the 50s were terrible. They were so terrible that... Well, terrible is not even the right word for them. They were awful. They were hapless. They were a joke. And Lombardi took over in 1959 and built them into one of the most dominant teams in NFL history. They won the NFL championship in 1961, 1962. They finished second in 1963 and 1964. They won again in 1965, the last championship before the Super Bowl. And then in 66 and 67, Super Bowls 1 and 2, they won both of them. That's five championships in seven years three in a row, and you say, well, what was it about this guy? What was his secret that made him such a great coach and such a great leader? Well, in the book, he's quoted, and listen to what he says, and I quote, Vince Lombardi said, through the years, I have found that between equal teams, the winning formula is a thin margin. It is an attitude that abhors mediocrity. Each of us, if we would grow must be committed to excellence, and even though we know that complete excellence can never be attained, we must pursue it with all our might. End of quote. Incredible guy. In fact, when he got the team together, his very first team meeting, 1959, when he took over the team, he had all the players in the room, and here's what he said to them, and I quote, He said, With every fiber of my body, I am going to make you into the best football players that I could possibly can. I'm going to try. And if I don't succeed the first day, I'm going to try the second day. And if I don't succeed the second day, I'm going to try the third day and I'm going to keep on trying. And what I ask from you is that you give me everything that is in you. I will accept no half-hearted attitudes, no defeatist attitudes, nothing but the relentless pursuit of excellence. There are planes and trains and buses that leave Green Bay every day, and if you don't give me your best, you will be on one of them." End of quote. Vince Lombardi had an attitude. Vince Lombardi had a worldview. Vince Lombardi had a perspective on life It was an attitude that he drilled into his players. It was an attitude that enabled them to rise above their limitations and achieve more than they ever dreamed they could achieve. And what was that attitude? Friends, it was an attitude all about the ruthless pursuit of excellence. Lombardi even said, and I quote, perfection is not attainable, but in chasing perfection, you can catch excellence. Is that a great quote? In chasing perfection, you can catch excellence. Now, this is what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about having a Vince Lombardi attitude as followers of Jesus Christ. And I want to see if out of our passage, we can't convince you this is how Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of his, wants you to live. So let's look. 1 Chronicles 29, a little bit of background. Remember now, David is coming to the end of his life. David has taken Israel, a tiny little divided country, and he's built Israel into the greatest empire in the ancient Near East. God has blessed David beyond David's wildest dreams, and yet David's not satisfied because he has a passion. He has a vision, a vision of wanting to build a magnificent temple for God in Jerusalem. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that God told David, David, you can't do it. It'll be your son Solomon who will do it. And so David ended up spending his years stockpiling the raw materials, drawing up the plans, lining up the subcontractors, all in anticipation of the day when Solomon would start on this temple. Well, the day is here. And, and now Solomon is about to embark on this project. And as David looks ahead to this temple being built, he looks ahead with a very distinct attitude, a very distinct outlook. And I want to show you what that is. Right here, verse 1. Then King David, he's gotten all the people together of Israel. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom the Lord has chosen, is young and inexperienced. Now, when you're young and you're inexperienced, you're going to make mistakes, right? I mean, that's we expect that. We expect youth and inexperience is going to mess up and it's just normal. Well, what David is saying to the people of Israel is that's not acceptable. I need your help. I need you to come around this young man. I need you to fortify and shore up this young man because the mistakes of youth and inexperience are simply not acceptable on this project. And here's why. Look what he says. The task is great because this palatial structure, this temple that we're going to build, is not for man. It's for the Lord God. Now, if you're doing something for man, David says, maybe we can deal with some of the mistakes that come from youth and inexperience. But when you're doing something for God, we can't have anything second rate, anything halfway. This has got to be done right. And so I need your help. I need you to gather around this boy and help this boy. Now, what's interesting to me is is how his son Solomon picked up on this attitude, how his son Solomon absorbed and imbibed this attitude as his own. Flip over, if you would, a chapter or two to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 2, and look with me, if you would, at verse 3. Second Chronicles 2, verse 3. It says, and Solomon, he's ready to start the temple now, Solomon sent this message to Hiram, the king of Tyre. Tyre was a Phoenician city on the Mediterranean coast in Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, just north of Israel. And this guy, you, 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 the, the Phoenicians, this guy Hiram, the king of the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians were incredible, notorious idol worshipers. Now, you may not realize it, but you know a Phoenician in the Bible. Yes, you do. There was a lady in the Bible who was a Phoenician. She was married to Ahab, King Ahab. Her name was Jezebel. You know her. You say, I didn't know she was Phoenician. Oh, yeah. She was a Phoenician princess. This was a political marriage between King Ahab and his closest northern neighbor, Phoenicia. And she, as a Phoenician princess, came into the northern kingdom of Israel with an agenda. Her agenda was to wipe out from the northern kingdom all knowledge, all true worship of the living God. She brought with her 400 prophets of Baal, the male deity of the Phoenicians she brought with her 450 prophets of Asherah, the female deity of the Phoenicians. And if you remember, these 850 people were the people Elijah faced on Mount Carmel when they both tried to call down fire from heaven to prove who was the real God. These were Jezebel's people up there. She was trying to wipe the knowledge of God out of the northern kingdom, a Phoenician. Now, Hiram is her great grandfather. That's who we're talking to here. Jezebel's great grandfather. And look what Solomon says to this guy. He says, verse three, send me cedar logs like you did for my father, David, when he was building his palace, because I am about to build a temple for the name of the Lord, my God. Now, hey, Hiram could have said, oh, well, good. You build a temple for your God. I'll build a temple for my God. Big whoop. No, no, no. Solomon didn't stop there. Look at verse 5. He says, "...the temple that I'm going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods, including your gods." Hiram, can you imagine writing a guy a letter like this and saying, "...send me your lumber, and oh, by the way, your gods are puny compared to our gods, but send me your lumber anyway." Can you imagine writing a letter like this? But you see, Solomon was excited about what he was doing, and he had picked up the very same attitude that David had, and that is, if you're going to do something for God, you've got to do it with excellence. Only one way to do it, and that is the best that you can possibly do. I appreciate that. Now, that's as far as we're going to go in the passage, because we have a really excellent question that we need to ask. So you ready? Everybody ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Now, Deborah did great. The rest of that was a little lame. And we're talking about excellence here. Come on now. I mean, what is the deal, guys? Of all the times, this is when you ought to give it your best shot. Let's try it one more time. Everybody ready? Come on now. You can do this. Ready? One, two, three. Now, wasn't that better? Yeah, much better. Now, you you say, Lon, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not building anything in Jerusalem. I don't even own stock in anything building anything in Jerusalem. This has nothing to do with me at all. Well, no, 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 I'm sorry. It has everything to do with you and me if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how. President Jimmy Carter used to love to tell the story about his legendary interview with the venerable Admiral Hyman Rickover. Admiral Rickover, when he was a younger man, had been the brains behind the first nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, and eventually rose to become the head of the United States Nuclear Sub-Service. And Carter was a midshipman graduating from the United States Naval Academy who wanted to go into the nuclear submarine service. And in those days, Rickover insisted on personally interviewing every single officer candidate who wanted to go nuclear subs. And so, young Carter was ushered into Rickover's office by an aide, and the aide told him to sit down on this. own, oh, there was one chair in the whole room, in the middle of the room, he said, sit. Now the problem is the front two legs of the chair had been chopped off, so the chair leaned forward, and they said, sit in that chair. So he sat down, the aide left, And the only other person in the room was Rickover, but Rickover had his back turned to Carter, looking out the window. All Carter could see was the back of his chair. And for what seemed like an eternity, Carter just sat there trying to sit in this weird chair, looking at the back of Rickover's chair. Finally, the aged man, the aged admiral, turned around, and he looked into the blue eyes of Jimmy Carter, and he said, So tell me, young man, at the Naval Academy, he said, did you do your best? At everything and Carter thought for a moment and said well sir no I guess I didn't always do my best at everything Rick over looked at him for a moment and simply said why not turned his chair around and the interview was over and a little bit later Ensign Carter was informed he had been denied admission to the nuclear subsurface. Now later, he eventually did get in. But you know, a lot of people would, re- would hear this story and think very unkindly of Admiral Rickover, but, but hey, I, I, I respect the guy. I love the guy. And I'll tell you why. Because here's a man who believed in something. Admiral Rickover believed he was serving the highest cause in the entire Navy and that the highest cause demanded the highest dedication to excellence from every single officer in that service. And if you didn't have that kind of dedication to excellence, you did not belong in the highest cause in the Navy. I respect that. And friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, as we look in the New Testament, we find God calling you and me to that very same standard of excellence. The same standard of excellence that Vince Lombardi called his players to. The same standard of excellence that Admiral Rickover called his naval officers to. The same standard of excellence that David called his son Solomon to. Let me show you that in the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to the letter Paul wrote to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and if you're using our copy of the Bible it's page 834 page 834 Colossians chapter 3 and let me show you God commenting to this in the New Testament Colossians chapter 3 and look with me if you would at verse 22 verse 22 starts off and says slaves now we would say today employees you say lawn what's the difference okay whatever however you see it. Okay, slaves, employees, whatever. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and not only to win their favor, but do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, right here, God is particularly speaking about our workplace environment and telling us that we are to do our work with a competency, a diligence, and excellence that exists not just when the boss is looking at you, not just when the boss is in the office, not just when you're being noticed by your superiors, but that there ought to be an authentic commitment to being the best employee, to working with excellence at every moment of every time, it doesn't matter who's looking. And look what he goes on to say, verse 23, whatever you do, Uh uh-oh, that covers it all. Whatever you do as a follower of Jesus Christ, look at this, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Friends, you know what this passage is telling us? That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the boss is never out of the office. The boss is never missing. The boss is never not looking because you're not serving that earthly boss who might be out of the office. You and I are serving the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ Himself who is always watching. And therefore, since everything we do is a matter of service to Jesus Christ, every single thing we do ought to be done with the greatest amount of excellence we can possibly do it. Now, what this verse is telling us is that in our world today, as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's no difference between secular and sacred in our lives. You know, now, our world system makes that difference. They talk about secular versus sacred. A lot of us do think in those terms, too. We, we, we think about, well, you know, what we do at work and what we do at home and what we do at school. I mean, that's all secular. But hey, if I come to church and I do something at church, well, that's different. That's for God. I'll do my best at that. And the world says in all that secular stuff, just do, the, do, well, do what you have to do to get by. Do the minimum. See what you can pull over on people. Try to pass it through. And hey, if you get caught. Well, the worst that can happen is you got to go back and do it again. And if you don't get caught, hey, you got away with it for minimal effort. That's secular stuff. That's the rules for that. Friends, what God is telling us here is that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as a distinction between secular and sacred when it comes to everything we do at church, at home, at the office, wherever. What does it say here? It is the Lord Jesus Christ that we are serving. It is all sacred. How you and I study for that exam at school, how you and I write that proposal at work, how you and I follow through on that customer service issue, how you and I do the laundry, wash the dishes, vacuum the floor, make the bed, cut the grass, fix the meals, all of this, all of this, is just as sacred in the sight of Almighty God as Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem. There's no difference. Now, if this is true, and it is, then this has some enormous implications for your life and my life as followers of Christ in the 21st century. It means that the attitude that David had about building the temple when he said, what we are doing is not for man. It's for the Lord God. Friends, it means that that's the very same attitude that you and I have to bring to every single thing we do. And with that attitude comes a commitment to excellence that needs to pervade every activity, every action, every attitude, everything we do. They say, well, Lon, if I was vacuuming God's floor, I would do a different job. Well, may I tell you, that's the whole point. You are vacuuming God's floor. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That floor doesn't belong to the office building. That floor doesn't belong to the dormitory. It belongs to God. Long after everybody else has gone and that floor is still there, it's still God's floor. And everything you and I do, it's done for the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a lady come up to me after one of the services and say, you know, Lon, with all this talk about performance and everything, i got two things to say. The first one is, you need to talk about the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? Well, let me... I I said to her, okay, I will. Next service, I will. So here's what I'd like to say about that. The Holy Spirit will take anything you give Him as a follower of Jesus Christ, and He will use it to honor God, but for you to give Him anything less than your absolute best is an insult to God. There I said it. That's how the Holy Spirit works into this. Just that simple. This is not about the Holy Spirit. This is about you and me and the level of dedication we did give to God. And then I had uh, the the other question was, well, what about the fact God loves us unconditionally? Friend, God loves you unconditionally, but that's no excuse for you to give God anything less than your best. No excuse. You know, um, I had this friend a few years ago. He's still my friend. But a few years ago, he was managing a giant food store over in suburban Maryland, and it was right near a Christian college over in suburban Maryland, and uh, he was a brand new follower of Jesus Christ. So he he hit on this wonderful strategy in his newfound exuberance for the Lord. Here was his strategy. He was going to hire all of these students from this Christian college, fill his employment ranks with all of these Christian kids, And use that, but he said, because they're going to come in and they're going to do a job that is head and shoulders above the job that my regular workers do. Because these people, I mean, they're dedicated to God. And I'm going to use that as a platform to share Christ with, with all of my workers that are not followers of Christ. And so that's exactly what he did. He hired oodles and oodles of these young people out of this Christian college to work at his giant food store. I saw him almost a year later and I asked him, Hey, how was that thing going? You remember you're going to hire all these people? And he said, Lon, it's going terrible. He said, I am so depressed. I don't know what to do. He said, you know what happened? I hired all these followers of Christ thinking they were going to come in. They were going to be head and shoulders above everybody. They were going to be my best workers. I was going to be able to point to them and say, See what Jesus does in your life. And Lon, they came in and were my worst workers. They were late to work. They took too long on their lunch break. We had to go back and redo the work they did because they were sloppy and lazy. They had the worst attitudes. They griped. They complained. He said, so I have a new strategy now. I said, what's your new strategy? He said, if a person comes to me now and tells me that they're a Christian, they're a follower of Jesus Christ and want a job, I deliberately don't hire them. I said, really? He said, yeah. Because I can't afford for them to come in and do a bad job and mess up my opportunity to talk to my employees about the Lord. So unless I know them and know they'll do a good job, if they say they're a Christian, I don't hire them. Now, what's your response to that, friends? I'll tell you, mine. Mine is, Houston, we have a problem. Is we, does anybody see a problem with this? I do. What went wrong... That somehow these college students never figured out that the way they worked at Giant Food was just as important as the way they studied the Bible in their Christian college. That the way they did their job at Giant Food was just as important as the way they did their Christian service at this college. Where did it go wrong that somebody didn't explain this to them? Where did they end up with secular versus sacred in their life? Something's wrong here. Now, may I say, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, that it's really important we stop for a minute and say, we need to be very careful here that we don't mix up oranges and apples. I mean, when we're talking about how to come into personal relationship with Christ, that's oranges. When we're talking about how to know you're going to heaven and have eternal life, friends, that doesn't have a thing to do with all the performance challenge that I'm giving people here today. We we come into personal relationship with Christ and get to go to heaven because we trust what Jesus did on the cross for us, plus nothing. Doesn't have a thing to do with performance. Those are oranges. Don't you take those oranges and try to put them in the apple basket. You'll get this whole thing mixed up. We're not talking about oranges today. I'm talking to the people who already have done the orange thing. They've already accepted Christ as their personal Savior. They are now in the apple basket, and we're talking to people in the apple basket about how, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to live. But don't mix the baskets here. You'll get this thing all wrapped around the axle and mess the whole thing up. Oranges, Jesus Christ plus nothing. Then you become an apple, and you're ready for what I'm saying today. All right, we got all that straight? I think I confused myself, but I think I got all that straight. You got all that straight? Okay, good. Now, one last passage and then we're done. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel in 586 B.C., when King Nebuchadnezzar carried away the, 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 the majority of the city of Jerusalem into captivity, Daniel was one of the people he carried away along with Daniel's three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sure, okay. And now, 45 years later, 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persians. And here in Daniel chapter 6, the first emperor of the Persian Empire, Darius, goes to reorganize the empire. So look at the screen. We'll shoot the verse. Here's what happened. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps, those are like county executives, to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And these county administrators were made accountable to these three top guys so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the three administrators and among these county executives by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. You understand what's happening here? He's going to make him prime minister of the whole Persian empire. Well, politics being what they are, not everybody was thrilled about this. Verse 4, and so the two other administrators and some of these county executives tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. What they did is they went through everything that this man did in terms of government affairs with a fine-tooth comb, and they said, we're going to find something he did that was second-rate, slovenly, lazy, something he did that was was just inexcusable, something he did that was just not the best, and we're going to take it to the king and we're going to accuse him and disqualify him. But it says, look, they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything. And verse 5 goes on to say that they said, we will never find any basis for charges against this guy unless we can figure out a way to tie it into his commitment to God. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, it it hits me like a ton of bricks. It makes me take a step back and ask myself a question. Hey, Lon, if your worst enemies were to go... These were not his friends. These were his worst enemies were to go through your ministry as a pastor of a church, this church, with a fine-tooth comb looking for anything lazy, anything second-rate, anything slovenly, anything that wasn't done with excellence... Could they find anything? Or would they be able to say about you, can't find anything? I don't know, friends. That's a pretty searching question. And i got to tell you, it's a question that I don't like to ask myself. It's a question you don't like to ask yourself. But it's a question God wants us to ask ourselves Because friends, the way you and I study for exam, the way you and I do our chores, the way you and I fulfill our ministry responsibilities, the way you and I carry out our duties at work, the way you and I return our phone calls and answer our emails, the kind of dad and father you are, the kind of mother and wife you are, the kind of worker, employee, neighbor, friend, and student you are... Friends, these are the issues that God wants us to ask ourselves. Could we play for Vince Lombardi the way we're doing those different things in our life? Or would he say, hey, guess what? There's a boat, there's a train, and there's a plane. Get on one of them. You're not playing for me like that. What would it be? And if he would say to you, get on the bus, Gus. You can't play like that for me. Then my next question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You're going to muddle on just the way you've been going? Or you going to make some course corrections with the help of God? What are you going to do? Friends, I got to tell you, God loves you. God accepts you. God values you no matter what you accomplish. This is not about what we accomplish. This is about the way we try. This is about the way we try. We're not talking about what you achieve. We're talking about the way you try. And the only thing that's acceptable is our very best. If God were to ask you and me what Over asked Carter, did you do your best? Doesn't matter how it turned out, but did you do your best? It's an insult for God, to God for us to answer with anything other than yes, Lord. To the best of my ability, I did my best. If you need a course correction, friend, I plead with you. Make it. There are no secular issues in your life. It's all sacred. Do it unto God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for a wonderful opportunity to look into the Word of God today. And you know, Lord, the truth is there's not a single one of us here wants to hear what we said today. Not one of us. I didn't. Nobody else did. And the reason for it, Lord, is we're all lazy. Every one of us. We all want to do the minimum we have to do to get by. That's the way the flesh is wired. We're honest about it. You know it's true of us. Ain't no sense trying to play games about it. That's who we are. But Lord, I thank you that you're talking to us today about a higher standard than that if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. That that's simply not acceptable. But that since you gave your best for us, it's an affront to God for us to give you back anything but our best. And so, Lord, forgive us for the many, many times we play minimal. For the many, many times we try to do it the world's way, just doing the least we have to to get by and hoping we don't get caught so we have to go do it over. Lord, teach us today that that's not the way to live our lives. And please, God. And for those of us here who need course corrections, and I can't imagine that most of us, including me, don't in some areas of our life, speak to us deeply today and challenge us So that we might go out every day seeing that it's all sacred. And therefore it demands every piece of it our absolute best. Change our lives. Change our outlook on the world. Change our behavior because we were here today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.